if we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Yes, indeed. Eight minutes after the hour of 10 o'clock, and we continue on this Thursday, the 18th morning of the second month of the year of our Lord, 2021. And um, I want to apologize. Like I said, I did not do that at the beginning of the show, and I did not do what I began to do uh, a few weeks ago, uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago, when the Democrats refused to state the or recite the Pledge of Allegiance at the beginning of committee hearings or committee meetings. And uh, we declared that we are going to... Um, we are going to uh, uh, fight that by promoting the Pledge of Allegiance to this glorious republic each and every day at the start of this radio program. So since I was kind of uh, taking, uh, you know, taking some time and starting with the uh, tribute, if you will, to Rush Limbaugh, I neglected to give the Pledge of Allegiance today. I'm going to rectify that right now. If you are not driving right now, please stand. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to a public for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. And I'm going to continue to do that with various children and adults, some produced, some classrooms uh, of pledges of allegiance to this great country because our kids need to learn this now perhaps more than ever before. Uh, they're being taught and indoctrinated about the evils of this country and to hate this country, and we are going to combat that every single step of the way. All right, we begin our number two with our friend uh, Dr. Everett Piper, who is our regular Thursday guest. He is a past university president. He's a best-selling author. He's a columnist for the Washington Times, and yes, he is also a radio host in his native Oklahoma. Dr. Piper, good morning. Good to have you, sir. How are you? I'm doing great, Bob. By the way, thank you for that commitment to the pledge. Um, we've talked about it on your show, and I've written about it and spoken about it elsewhere. How can you have a nation without national borders, a national motto, a national currency, or a national pledge, or a national military? The list goes on and on. When we get criticized for being Christian nationalists, really what they're saying is, we don't believe that you should be loyal and proud of our nation and they're proving it by expunging the very things that define us as a nation from our culture. 
Very well said, and uh, and it is important. Like I said, I you know that one was a little child, a little uh, black child named Cedric Richmond. I've got classrooms full of kids. I've got produced uh, pledges of allegiance as well that are put forth by patriot groups. I'm going to do all of these things just because I want to remind everybody this is what it, it it's all about. We do have to uh, we do have to defend this nation, and part of that is indeed recognizing all of those national um, elements of it. So um, I appreciate that. Thank you, Doctor Piper. Doctor, before we get into the issue of the day or issues of the day, um, you know, it, it would be remiss if I did not ask another conservative who has benefited greatly from the leadership and the wisdom of Rush Limbaugh, uh, as you have and as I have and as we all have. I called him the grandfather of conservative talk, and I quickly changed that to the grandfather of conservative pride. He made it okay for us to speak out loud. He spoke for us our belief in conservative values and the constitution of this great republic. Oh, he really did. I remember when I was working in my younger years at uh, University of Michigan, not the University of Michigan, a university right. in Michigan. And um, I was one of the lone conservatives within that environment. And I always remember feeling like I was um, backed into a corner. And I felt a bit of intimidation because I didn't feel it was okay for me to even come out and express my conservative views. But along comes Rush Limbaugh, and he starts doing so, expressing conservative views nationally with confidence and clarity. He had good research. He basically emboldened all of us to fight the good fight. He said, it's okay. Our ideas are strong. In fact, our ideas are better. And he gave us several arrows in our quiver so we could go out and do the good work of recovering the conservative principles that serve as the foundation for our, our freedom and our liberty as a nation. That's very well said, and that's why the legacy of Rush Limbaugh is going to be, it's going to live on for, I, I mean, literally hundreds of years. As long as this republic survives, it will look back to his um, influence on popular conservatism, populism, conservative populism. You can phrase this any way that you wish, uh, but it, it, he made it okay for us to defend ourselves against the one-sided uh, talking points uh, that were pushed at us by the leftist media before the age of the internet. When Rush Limbaugh started, it was just about the nightly news, and it was about the new the newspapers he gave us uh what we need in fact you know what i said uh, um last night when i was doing the larry elder show is that without rush limbaugh i don't think there's a fox news fox news has been yeah. the dominant uh um you know cable news uh a network or a program or, or or station or whatever uh they have been the most dominant cable news company since their inception in 1996 without rush limbaugh paving the way on on radio i don't think there's a fox news on tv Oh, you're absolutely right. And let's, I mean, you may have already said this earlier in your tribute to him. Uh, I don't know that you would have a job doing what you're doing right now. I don't know that people oh, would care to listen no. to me do what I do right now. Because Rush Limbaugh built that building. He not only built the foundation, he built the entire structure for you and I and thousands of other conservative voices to have a platform. People started caring about an alternative idea to the liberal pablum that was being peddled throughout our culture. That goes back That's to Rush. Exactly You're absolutely right. right. There would be no Levin, no Hannity, no Prager, no Elder, no local hosts like Bob France. None of us if Rush Limbaugh had not forged that path. A thousand percent true. All right, Dr. Piper, you mentioned the University of Michigan a moment ago. Not the specific one, but you worded it that way. And here in Ohio, you have to know, we despise the University of Michigan and we revere the Ohio <laughs> State, the Ohio State University. 
And, uh, you know, with pretty, (laughs) (laughs) with, uh, with respect to the football and the basketball teams at the very least, but, um, I, this story makes me sick to my stomach and I wish I didn't have it, but I do. Um, right now, this is Thursday in the middle of what is called Sex Week at Ohio State University. And during Sex Week, there are scores of conferences that are being held uh, and educational discussion sessions that are being held that are encouraging the students at Ohio State to um, to engage in a, in a series of behaviors that I can just describe only as bizarre. Among some of them, Dr. Piper, are Kink 101. Uh, you can imagine what that means. Life's a Drag, a conversation with the drag community. Um, decolonizing porn. Uh, we have abortions explained plainly. We have, let's see, holy sexuality, envisioning inclusive sex ed in faith settings. Uh, a couple more, let's see, holy, oh no, I have, the work, they work hard for the money, sex work, uh, with Dr. Tila Sanders, and Couple more, the beyond beyond the gender binary with a lock. I don't even want to imagine what this has to do as a part of Sex Week with the beyond the gender binary. But the worst of it all, Doctor Piper, is the fact that they are pushed. Young freshman teenage girls are encouraged to use what I guess is an app called OnlyFans to profit off of their own sexuality, selling pornographic images and or videos of themselves on a website called OnlyFans to make money. In other words, The Ohio State University is encouraging young students to prostitute themselves for online use. I'm going to step out of the way now and let you uh, let you go. <laughs> oh, yeah. I laugh not because this stuff is, I'm taking this stuff in a lighthearted way. I'm laughing mm-hmm. at, how do we respond to this? I mean, it, it, you almost don't even have to comment. Their titles and the descriptions of their workshops and their classes speak for themselves. Any normal human being, and when I say normal, a person who recognizes that a male is a male and a female is a female, and that you can't have women's rights unless women are real, and that the binary distinction that exists within our world, within the animal kingdom, not just to mention within humanity, is just a fact. I mean, I could go on and on and on, and I could respond to this by saying, what the heck are you talking about? But here's where we are right now. Um, Let's zero in on this uh, app where young girls are being encouraged to sell uh, pictures of themselves for profit. In other words, they're they're selling their bodies, they're selling their images, they're selling their sexuality for money. That's called prostitution. And Ohio State University, and it's not just Ohio State, this is going on in every state of the nation, and that's not hyperbolic. That's just a fact. I've been warning of this and speaking about this stuff for a decade or more. Because it's going on in Oklahoma, it's going on in Michigan, it's going on everywhere. All of these state universities and secular schools have these sex weeks. Unfortunately, some of the Christian colleges, quote-unquote, have sex weeks. And here's the thing. They're actually coming out right now and admitting that they're encouraging 18-year-old girls and younger to sell themselves online for profit, for money. And here's the other fact related to that app that they're promoting. There are underage girls using that app to sell themselves. In other words, that app is guilty of child sex 
trafficking. And Ohio State University, as well as a host of other schools, is promoting that. And here's who, here's who else promotes it. Kamala Harris. Because she believes that prostitution should be legalized in the United States, and therefore that app should be something we celebrate rather than something that we question and perhaps even suggest should be illegal. Um, you don't want to hear something weird, uh, Dr. Piper, when you said this I is going on. I think we already did. Well, <laughs> Touche. Here's something weirder. Um, when you say this is going on in schools all over the country, you're right, and you said even in Christian schools. Here's the weird part. I am less offended by it happening in in Christian schools than I am in state schools, and here's why. Those are privately funded schools, and private donors can choose not to fund schools that are promoting sex week. At Ohio State University and others that are state schools, I don't have a choice. My tax dollars fund that university. So my tax dollars, without me having any say in it whatsoever, and yours in your state, our tax dollars are taken from us to promote the prostitution of our children when we send them to these universities. That, to me, is just sick. I would rather uh, rather have these things happen at Christian colleges or private universities where donors can say, not on my watch, pull their funding and enact some sort of change. And here's the thing. Um, the reason that this stuff uh, persists is because parents and taxpayers aren't rising up and saying, hey, no more, not on my watch. We're not doing anything about it. And people like you who dare to speak out and to inform the public of this nonsense, you're immediately maligned and marginalized as being some sort of prude who's fixated on sex. Why do you talk about this on your show? Now, but we can't get intimidated by that tactic. This is awful. This is the abuse of women. This is encouraging 17- and 18-year-old girls and younger to prostitute themselves online. This is just a fact, and why should we remain silent? We have the high ground here. We can win this one if we defend the dignity of women. We should beat that drum till the cows come home. The dignity of women. The dignity of women. The dignity of women. We are pro-women's rights. We are the classical feminists because we believe in the female. We believe in the feminine. And the left no longer does. We do not believe in objectifying women. In fact, we want to elevate them to the image of God. That's a winning argument. And good for you for bringing it up on your show because so many people are running the other direction because they don't want to be pigeonholed, as some conservative proved. That's right. And I can tell you this, too. A lot of conservatives in the state of Ohio won't talk about this because it's this is Ohio State. Our love for the Buckeyes, our love for all things OSU. I mean, people have their flags in their front yards. They have Ohio State all over their cars. Ohio State is an institution in this state, and I don't mean that just as in terms of an educational one. It is a lifestyle in this state. So a lot of people want to turn their heads and say, I don't hear you, la, 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 and they allow this stuff to continue. Dr. Everett Piper, right back after this, AM 1420, The Answer. Okay, it's 1025. I've got five good minutes left with uh, Dr. Everett Piper. There were two other stories that Dr. Piper and I wanted to cover. I fear we're only going to have time for one right now, so we're going to have to put one on hold until next week. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the story of Max Lucado, the Reverend Max Lucado, who, um, Dr. Piper, you have read his apology for his past grievances, his past errors, his past sins. What are those sins? Twelve, seventeen years ago, he wrote in an article and delivered in a sermon, uh, 
traditional biblical teachings about same-sex marriage. He compared it to polygamy, the potential for polygamy, along with bestiality, incest, and other things, uh, and his suggestion that homosexuality can be cured or changed by pastoral care was, was noted. Well, 17 years later, apparently all of that stuff was out of fashion, uh, including biblical teachings, because now he has apologized in a letter to the Washington National Cathedral. Uh, I know you have some strong feelings about this apology, Dr. Piper, so I'm going to ask you, why are people who are persons of faith, who have preached the word of the Bible, feeling as though they have no choice now but to go back on their preaching of the words of the Bible? Um, is it out of fear of cancellation? It may be. It may be selfish, and they're afraid of losing money um, in terms of book sales, because Max Lucado is a very popular evangelical author, uh, multiple books that have been national bestsellers. So in the evangelical world, Max Lucado is a big deal. And the fact that he would apologize for preaching the Word of God, for preaching the Bible, that's all he did. And now he's apologizing for it. I, I, I just am stunned. Well, I'm not stunned. I'm not surprised, because these, these guys are falling left and right. But here's the thing. What are you apologizing for, Max? Are you apologizing for the biblical truth that you can be born again and that you're not to be satisfied with being born that way? Are you apologizing for that? Are you apologizing for the fact that the Bible makes it clear that you are supposed to die to self and become a new creation in Christ? Is that what you're apologizing for? Are you apologizing for the fact that God makes it very clear in Genesis, the first few sentences of Genesis, that we are created male and female? In his image, he created them, male and female, and that the binary reality of the human being is a biological, theological, and biblical fact. Is that what you're apologizing for, Max? What the heck are you apologizing for? Here's why. Let, let me be specific, Dr. Piper, if I may. Let me just give you this because it's in his letter. Here's what he's apologizing for. He's apologizing for the church itself. He literally has said, quote, in, in his apology letter, over centuries, the church has harmed LGBTQ people and their families, just as the church has harmed people on issues of race, gender, divorce, addiction, and so many other things. We must do better and to serve and love one another. So he's literally saying the church itself, not just him and his words, but the church is guilty. That's what he's apologizing for. Absolutely. And shame on him on several levels. First of all, you don't have the right to apologize for me, Max, because I don't agree with you. So stop apologizing for the church. I'm part of it, and I'm part of the body of Christ, and I'm following Scripture, so stop apologizing for me for doing so. Now, when you say you've harmed the LGBTQ community, how so? How so? You know, a good sermon is supposed to call to attention the fact that you need to confess your sin. Are you harming me when you preach a sermon that's biblical that calls me to that point of repentance and confession. No, you're not harming me. You're helping me. So how is it that the Church is guilty of this nefarious deed of harming the, quote, LGBT community? And one more thing. You just equated a behavioral choice, a behavioral adjective, homosexual activity, with an immutable characteristic that's created by God, i.e. your race, the color of your skin or your sexual gender. 
Those are not the same thing, Max. A behavior is different than race. And you just insulted everybody that's Hispanic or black or Asian by equating a behavioral choice with their immutable God-given identity. Ugh. Um. I'm going <laughs> to, I feel the frustration of that UG. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to go back to the beginning of what I asked you here about, I, I think it's fear of cancellation. You said because, well, maybe he fears losing money or losing book sales. That's exactly what I mean by cancellation. There are people who say things that are true. There are things that are part of their faith, et cetera, et cetera, just commonsensical things. If they are not approved of by the woke community, they're going to lose their jobs or they're going to lose their companies or they're going to lose their sources of income in some way, shape or form. I don't think, uh, Max Locato is any different that's what he's worried about here last thought i agree with you he's afraid of being unpopular that's what he's afraid of there that's a great summation dr everett piper thank you so much we'll talk about the rest of this next week we appreciate it sir blessings take care blessings to you as well Ten thirty now so we're going to get our newscast and on the other side of that ohio politics ohio lockdowns ohio mask mandates ohio curfews what what are their futures well, the Ohio State Senate just cast a very important vote that may dictate that future. Jack Windsor is going to be joining us next to discuss on 1420 The Answer. Ten thirty-five. we continue on AM 1420 The Answer. Appreciate you being with us. We're doing the business uh, of the people each and every day and each and every hour. Um, that's what Rush Limbaugh did every single day. But considering his passing yesterday, um, I'm going to continue to give tributes and responses and um, you know uh, eulogies, if you will, to the memory and the legacy of the great Rush Limbaugh as we go. When I served in the House of Representatives, uh, he was our greatest champion. Uh, when we were fighting a rear guard action for conservative values, uh, in uh, Republican and Democrat administrations, he was there giving us air cover every single day. When I was governor of Indiana and when I served as vice president, uh, he was the anchor of conservatism. I love that, what uh, former Vice President Mike Pence just, how he just described it. He gave us air cover. I love the double entendre there. It's a military word for air cover, but on the air cover for uh, for his entire career. President Trump uh, yesterday also paying tribute to Rush Limbaugh. I got a call from a friend of mine who was a big Rush fan, and he said, Rush loves you. I said, no, I don't see that. You know, I hadn't heard. I'm not able to listen to the radio during the afternoon too much you're on the trail and you're making speeches or doing whatever you're doing i was actually making speeches and running a business i was doing both of them simultaneously right and uh he just told me that and then all of a sudden i started getting little transcript stuff i would try to listen every once in a while he was there right from the beginning and it was incredible and then i i guess i called him just to thank him and we developed just some very good friendship we played golf together a little bit. He was a very strong guy, physically very strong. Hit the ball a long way. He was, <laughs> of course, he did. Uh, I wonder if he played with golden uh, golf balls the way he did with his uh, golden EIB microphone. But uh, uh, yeah, just uh, ongoing tributes to Rush Limbaugh, uh, the OG, the original. He did it. 
uh, before anybody else ever even thought of it, and we all owe our careers, those of us in this industry, to him. All right, let's continue now with the uh, business of the people, and uh, let's talk about um, the state of Ohio. We talked about lockdowns. We've had curfews. We have had mask mandates. We have all of these things that have been put in place since the uh, 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 beginning of the coronavirus uh, uh, pandemic, the China virus, if you will. And we have been begging for somebody to give us a reason to hope. We have been begging the Ohio General Assembly to do something to limit the unilateral decisions of Mike DeWine or the bilateral decisions, if you will, from Mike DeWine to Amy Acton in the early part of all of this. When is the legislature going to have a say? Well, maybe that answer is now. Joining us to discuss this is the managing editor of the Ohio Star website, which is a very important uh, conservative, in other words, journalistically oriented news site, Jack Windsor. Jack, good morning. How are you? Bob, I'm super fantastic. Thank you for choosing me today. It's an honor to talk with you again. Jack, I was very gratified to see this particular uh, iteration of the Ohio State Senate do what the last one would not do, and that's actually take a vote on a bill that would limit the powers of the governor and the health director um, to, you know, essentially destroy and ruin the lives of free Ohioans. Senate Bill 22 passed, uh, what was the number, 25 to 8, I think it was? Um, Yes, 25 to 8. 25 to 8. So tell us what, tell us more about this bill, Jack Windsor, and tell us what this passage means and where it goes from here. So the vote was strictly along party lines, uh, 25 to 8, um, Republicans to, to 8, um, Democrats. So now the bill will head to the House where, uh, 60 votes would be needed eventually to overcome a veto, to be veto proof. Now that's important because the governor has already promised to veto the bill saying it's not the time to wrest power from him and the experts at ODH. So, um, a veto-proof majority in the Senate would be 20, so they're well beyond that as of now. Uh, if it passes after the governor vetoes, the bill would need to go back to the Senate, where they'd need only 20 votes to override, and then the House, where it would need 60. Um, so how far, and we'll start here, how far out are we um, from the bill becoming effective? So it took about three and a half weeks from introduction to approval. Now, assuming the same in the House, we're looking at about March 12th, maybe 15. So the governor's going to veto it. He'll sit on it for 10 days before doing that. So we're looking at late March. And at that point, um, the bill would have to go back to the Senate because even if it has a um, veto-proof majority, my understanding, on the first iteration, it still has to go back to the House of Origin, which is the Senate, where, again, it would need 20, and then it would toggle over to the House where it would need those 60. But sources inside the State House say that um, they may be rolling logs on the matter even before it comes back the state house um and one thing that they told me to remember is that the budget is now in play so there there are billions of dollars to leverage on this thing um you know governor if you want this done then do you know do acts now the bill does not contain an emergency provision so it does take an additional 90 days before becoming effective which takes us to around june 30th you know middle of july okay let let me jump in let me jump in. That yep. I was. I'm glad you said that because I was going to ask you about that. When would it take effect? After all of the delays you just discussed, getting through both houses to the governor to sit on and yada yada yada. Why the 90 days? Uh, why can't they include an emergency provision in this? Because quite literally, what this bill is doing is trying to stop them from taking drastic actions in a quote state of emergency. Yes, they actually can. So they can add an emergency clause to that bill when it comes back. It would just need 66% approval. Now, the Senate already has that by more than three votes, uh, assuming right. everyone stayed put on the vote. If the House um, were to approve the emergency clause, that would make 
uh, that would require 66 votes. That would mean that all the Republicans would have to favor the bill and two Dems would have to cross the aisle. Not impossible, okay. but probably not likely on the matter. But implausible um, anyway. Yes. So, Jack, um, you said short- you said that Mike DeWine's statement here is this is not the right time to wrest power from me, etc. Um, when is the right time? I, I, I read a, a quote from Christina Rogner from Hudson who said, yeah, I agree. This is not the right time. The right time would have been 10 months ago. <laughs> what a great line. And it's very, very true. This is, you know, this is getting to be dragged out so much so that it almost I don't know, because I, I can't predict, and neither can they, when the end of the pandemic will come or when the herd immunity is reached. But we're talking about riding the side. By the time we actually get this thing passed um, and then sent back and then overridden, by the time that happens, we might be at the end of this whole thing, and it might be almost pointless except for the next time that a pandemic comes around. You know, both Democrats and Republicans gave speeches on the floor yesterday. But far and away, the man of the hour was primary bill sponsor, Terry Johnson. He's a doctor. He's a combat medic. Uh, he shredded the limp testimonies um, of the Democrats on the matter. And uh, he was the final speech before they went to vote. And, you know, there were maybe two Republicans who may have voted against it. Um, if they were on the stand, um, if they needed compelling, uh, they were likely inspired by what he said, similar to what Rogner said. Um, you know, there was a lot in what he, he said, but, you know, people have accused some senators of being armchair quarterbacks. And he said, excuse me, we're the Senate. That's our job. We're not armchair quarterbacks. We're senators of the state of Ohio. And then he also pointed to the fact that, uh, you know, there are certain parts of the country where rules and regulations were more lax that are outperforming areas of the country where they were more strict. And he said, so, you know, best case scenario, we don't know. It's, it's very inconclusive. And then he went on to talk about how um, really kind of hypocritical it was that some people were talking about uh, following the letter of the law and these mandates, but at the same time they're shopping at Walmart, ordering things on Amazon when, you know, Amazon warehouses are cheating with people. And he's saying, but, you know, we've got to put mom and pop businesses out. Uh, his testimony, to your point, was extremely compelling. And the time was months and months and months ago. Um, but obviously yeah. the line is to be that, you know, I don't know how many people on the left are going to be uh, – brought over to to the light if you will yeah i think that's that's a great point but but i mean everything you just said it's it's about picking winners and losers political winners and losers who gets to stay open who doesn't and yes invariably it was the mom and pop shops and all of their little employees who are your neighbors and mine who didn't get to go to work and had to end up going on uh unemployment or filing for benefits or whatever the case might be that's why it is so crucial and for anybody to see the arms to your quarterback line that you just used Spot on. This, these are not bystanders who are just, you know, or maybe the children of daddy government, daddy DeWine, you know, asking for, hey, can I have permission to do this? They are equal co-branches of government or co-equal branches of government, rather. And these are elected representatives of the people of the state of Ohio. If they don't have an equal say in how emergencies are handled, then we are obviously ignoring the Ohio Constitution and, to a larger extent, the U.S. Constitution upon which it's based. I, I couldn't, couldn't have said that any better. Um, but, you know, getting into this Senate Bill uh, 22, it, it kind of yeah. parceling it out into existing orders and then new orders in the future, uh, existing orders would be subject to uh, uh, it, it, so any order, so executive order issued by the governor, um, including an emergency declaration or special or standing orders issued by the ODH and any agency in response to a public health emergency, they would be subject 
um, to this bill, to this law, the day that it goes into effect um, for review and rescission by both the General Assembly and then the committee that this bill establishes, which we'll talk about in a second. And then um, existing orders, this bill would provide that any emergency declaration in effect on the bill's effective date, which we, you know, we've kind of kicked out to about July now, is considered uh, to have been issued on the bill's effective date and may not exist for more than 90 days following the bill's effective date unless the General Assembly extends it. So um, in that case, you know, worst-case scenario for people who want this um, this taken down, we're looking at probably mid-September for the emergency declaration to be pulled down. Um, T- tell us about that order. committee you mentioned that this bill creates, you, you, uh, the, the committee you mentioned that SB 22 creates. Yes. So um, the committee is actually uh, made up of, originally it was 10, um, and now it's six. It's the Ohio Public Health and Oversight Committee. Um, and that committee is made up of two members of the majority party from the Senate, one in the minority, two members of the majority party in the House, and, and one in the minority. And um, that committee, so it has the ability following the issuance of an executive order in response to a public health state of emergency by a majority vote of its members um, to rescind the order and uh, any order or rule that any agency would put in play with respect to a state of emergency 11 days following its issuance. So that committee has the, the power within 11 days to pull down any any order of the governor or any order of, of an agency. The thing that it doesn't do is it doesn't give that committee the authority to, to pull down the state of emergency. However, the General Assembly, under this legislation, does have the power to do that, and they have the power to do that after it's been in effect for 30 days. Um, actually, I want to, no, I'm sorry. It, it would have to be... <clears throat> Yes, it would have to be 30 days, and it provides that if the emergency is terminated by the General Assembly, the governor cannot declare an identical or substantially similar state of emergency for 90 days after that. Okay. Um, Jack, let's get to the nuts and bolts of the the numbers, Um, and and you you referenced it's going to take 60. At the end of the last General Assembly, the argument that former Senate President Larry Abhoff made was they don't have the votes over there to do this anyway, so why should we bother taking the vote? Do we know, do you have sources that tell you, are we at 60 or more to make sure that this thing can at least get through there before it goes to get vetoed? Yes. So the Senate definitely has the votes. Uh, my understanding is the House does as well. So they need 60. The, the, uh, do they have the a House cushion, right Jack? Yeah, I think so. There are 64 Republicans, 35 okay. Democrats in the House. And my understanding uh, is that it's, um, it's strongly supported, um, but obviously once it gets vetoed, you know, the governor buys some time to, um, you know, kind of log roll himself. But I think, here's what I think. I think, you know, 75% of people in the Senate yesterday, all Republicans, but nonetheless, said, hey, we support resting, you know, power, wrestling power from you and the ODH. Not, it's not even about the power. It's about getting back in the arena and playing the role of the legislature to provide a check and balance. I think that's a pretty strong signal. Um, and I think if the House passes it, I think that's an even stronger signal. And I wonder if that might not change, uh, you know, the way that DeWine looks at his power and the ODH's power right now. But 
The other thing that I think we have to pay attention to, uh, like all bills proposed legislation, it was reviewed by the Legislative Service Commission, which is a nonpartisan group of attorneys, researchers, analysts, economists. Um, and in the commentary they provided on the bill, the commission pointed to potential constitutional snag. Uh, basically, they said that the law may be viewed as a violation of the separation of powers. The legislature makes laws and the executive branch enforces them. And it's unclear if the General Assembly's authority and the new committee's powers violate that separation when the legislature says, Governor and agencies, you have the power to declare an emergency and enact orders, but then we determine if the orders are valid by a joint resolution. Um, they pointed to a Supreme Court, a United States Supreme Court case, which says that it might be problematic. But then they also said that the state Supreme Court has not decided on the matter. Um, I've reached out to the 1851 Center for Constitutional Law and Maurice Thompson, and he sent me back a pretty lengthy response. Um, but basically, you know, that it, it might be a snag. You know, this might be a poison pill that we're swallowing here by trying to undo things by resolution instead of by law. Um, but I need to dig in deeper to that. Jack Windsor is our guest. He's the managing editor of the Ohio Star News uh, website. Uh, Jack, before you go off topic briefly, Jane Timken made it official and announced this morning. Is she the front runner on the GOP side for Rob Portman's Senate seat, do you believe? You know, I think if she can separate herself from the institution, um, she is an institutional Republican, and I think that's how she's going to be viewed. I don't think that she was um, as outspoken over the past several months until after she stepped away from her role uh, as chairwoman of the Ohio Republican Party. Now, she'll point to that and say, well, I was just doing my job. Um, but, you know, her detractors will point to that and say, okay, she's flip-flopping. I think Mandel is a heck of a lot more outspoken. Um, you know, Mike Gibbons, I don't know if you saw the letter that he put out to Ohio voters yesterday. I did. Um, but I... He's taken a tack there where I kind of think he has a point, you know. Um, I think Jane Timken is associated with, um, you know, the good old Republican Party, and basically the Central Committee decides who's going to be on the ticket, and either you swallow that bill or you don't. And, you know, Gibbons came out, and, you know, without going into great detail, it, it kind of sounds like what he's saying is that we need to give the authority back to, you know, local Republicans, not a Central Committee, to decide who they want to be on the ballot. Um so for that He's reason, right. yeah, I, I think that I think that there are a lot of people in Ohio right now who are going, oh, okay, has she been in the party a while? Is she is she institutional? Is she you know part of the old guard? Uh, no, I don't want her. Um, so from that vantage point, um, I, I think she can be beaten. But man, she's going to raise a ton of money. Yeah. Um, she has a ton of ring, name recognition. But then I also think that Mike Gibbons, um, you know, that that letter to me yesterday was fantastic messaging. Um, and, and really a strong signal that he's probably about to step into the ring under the guard, under the guise of, hey, I'm not the institutional guy here. I embody all of these things that, you know, Trump stood for and that true conservatives stand for. And you need to bet on me instead of Timken and Mandel. Jack Windsor with some uh, great political analysis there. We'll talk more about that as the time goes on here. And uh, Mike Gibbons does eventually enter this race. Along, I talked to Josh Mandel uh, a few days ago. So uh, obviously it's just getting heated up. But I agree with your analysis of Timken. She's going to raise a ton of money because essentially she is Rob Portman. She is institutional rhino from the beginning to the end. And uh, I got news for you. I don't like it. Uh, but we'll talk more about it another time. Jack Windsor, thanks for the great insight on SB22 and the process going forward. We appreciate it, Jack. Thanks, Bob. Have a great afternoon.
10.53, final time out, final segment coming. AM 1420, The Answer. All right, final segment of The Authority on this Thursday. Obviously a very short one. It's already 10.58. Great conversation and great information from uh, Jack Windsor at The Ohio Star. We also spoke uh, this hour with Dr. Everett Piper about the state of faith in this country and uh, the attack that it is under and what that means for us going forward and our ability to unite or not. I just don't see it happening, quite frankly. As a matter of fact, I, I talked about that um on the air and also online, and somebody sent me an article that I think I read, actually, at the time. It was written in April, I think, of 2019. Yeah, here it is, April of 2019. Uh, but it was rerun or reposted or whatever uh, in uh, 2020, just, in fact, three months ago in November. And it calls not for a civil war among Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberals, but a civil divorce. Let's just go our separate ways. Let's just divide up the community property. You take your part of the country, we'll take our part, and we'll just we'll just we'll just separate. And the article is phenomenal. And you know who wrote it? David Camioner, who we had on the air two weeks ago. We're gonna get him back on to freshen up the idea of not a civil war, but a civil divorce between the right and the left in this country that cannot go on as is. That's all the time that we've got. Thanks so very much to everybody for joining us today. Stay right here for Mike Gallagher, and we'll see you tomorrow for a free-for-all Friday. Bye-bye.